All right. Stand for just a moment longer for God's word. The uh, book of James. I'd like to uh, read for you what we'll be going over again today. We'll be reviewing a little bit of what we looked at last time, and we'll be making progress through the chapter up to about verse 20. So, so I said last time, so believe me if you will. All right, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You may be seated. All right, so last time I talked a little bit about the fact that this James is James, the brother of Jesus. I didn't have for you quick at hand the uh, citations. Just because I like life to be hard for everybody, I didn't write them on the handout either, so you can write them down now if you want. So, Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 to 56, 13, 55 to 56, Matthew 13, 55 to 56, we'll list out four brothers of Jesus, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Now, um, it also mentions sisters, plural. So it's got at least two of them. So plural means. So, there's at least two of them. So we have at least at least six siblings that come with Mary to talk about you know seeing brother sister mother. So that's from there. Mark six three also talks about this. Um, we also deal with the fact that in Acts chapter twelve verse two, James the brother of John is killed. So which gives us an indication this is not the guy who wrote this letter because that killing occurs at a time that would be early for a dispersion. And so they're writing to the dispersion. And we also have Galatians 2.9 talks about James, Cephas, and John being pillars in the church in Jerusalem. And then we have the Acts 15 discussion with James being sort of presented as a, a moderator, a guy who pulls in the information, formats the motion, puts it into a letter form, and then the decree gets voted on by the council there. So you have James there. It seems to be the James of the that wrote this, and the James, the brother of Jesus. There's some interesting archaeological things, but who cares? Great. 
All right, so we're going to go into the outline again. So the outline I've given to you is chiasm. I stole it from Philip Kaiser. So I have the link down there at the bottom this time for that. This is a, I've modified some of the descriptors. I disagree with him on a couple of doctrinal positions on how he interprets it, but I think the chiasm is right. So um, I have tried to emphasize this book is about, this book is about a credible profession of faith and how to judge it. This book is not about assurance of salvation. This book is not about the definition of saving faith. This book, if you interpret it as being about the definition of saving faith, you should return to Rome. If this book is about assurance of salvation, you will never be assured because your, your works are not good enough. So you should not be assured by your works. Look at your works. You need to see the sin in it. And so if your assurance of salvation depends upon the sufficiency of your own works to demonstrate that you are a believer, you are not going to have assurance. And so the book is talking about a credible profession of faith because we cannot read other people's minds. And so we need a double testimony to accept a profession of faith. The testimony of their mouth that they believe and the testimony of their works. And so that's put forward as the the two witnesses of a profession of faith. Now, the first part of the book, verses 1 to 8, this is the thesis section, and it relates to the end. So remember a chiasm, you have relating parts. So verses 1 to 8 is A, how to handle trials, and then we have chapter 5, verses 7 to 20, is also a how to handle trials type of issue, and those things get dealt with. And remember, you turn to page 2 of the outline, we talked about how the introduction, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. So there's the scattered part. Scattering has to do with this sort of like leaving the home, this departure, and the end of the book has to do with pulling back in the wandering brother. I gave you a lot of other things last time. This is the shortened version there of that point. So this is how the book ends. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. He's writing to these people that are scattered, and he's talking about the importance of bringing people back from wandering. Okay, so that's that closing out connection there. So, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. We talked about how the trials are trials of faith. They're testing of faith. And so God uses testing of faith to grow faith. Why should we count that as joy? Because faith, or the knowledge of God, wisdom, is the good. It's the good life to grow in wisdom. And so if we have more wisdom, we've gained more of what's good. And so you are willing to pay less than you value a thing in order to get that thing. Right? If you value it more than the price someone's offering it at, you go, that's a good deal. I'm going to trade. That's what all trade is. Giving something you value less for something you value more. And so if God gives you this deal, I will let you suffer for a time, and I will give you wisdom for it. It's a good deal. One is unperishable. The other is temporary. So we are to count it as joy. Easier said than done. But we're all told to do that. As a preacher, whenever you teach on that, you always feel like you're setting yourself up for something really bad to happen. But God is not that way. He's not a monster looking for opportunities to make us look bad. He does predestine all the times we look bad. But we should approach life knowing that the Lord blesses and prospers the putting forward of the truth. And so, you say, I should count it all joy if I fall into various trials. And if they come, trust the Lord to give you the strength to be able to stand. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. We talked about patience. Patience is, you could, you could also talk about it as fortitude, strength of soul. It yields stability. And so, Wisdom gives fortitude. Wisdom gives fortitude. It gives stability. 
doubting, or the belief of false doctrine, the separation from true doctrine, causes instability. And so what we get to at sort of the end of the, the thesis, right, if you go to verse 8 on page 4, He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Right? It's talking about the one who doubts. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Double-mindedness is believing contradictory things. It's believing and then not believing from one moment to the next. It's, it's combated by having a clarity of thought in knowledge, having certainty. That gives stability. So instability comes from uncertainty. So why does knowledge matter? It matters because it provides stability. It matters, more importantly, by the way, that's a psychological answer, so you all should have been like, no, that matters way less than God's glory. Right. So you know what matters less than how you feel? God's glory. Or what matters more? What matters more, sorry, more, what matters more than how you feel is God's glory. So, the fact that God is glorified by you knowing him matters more than the psychological impact on you. But we, because we don't have our desires properly ordered, care more about our psychological stability. And so it's a good sales point for people who are on the way. And at a certain point, you become mature enough that you say, I care more about the glory of God than I do about my psychological stability. It's a nice side benefit like one of the nice side benefits of cars is they produce CO2, which will make us all warmer, which will give us more rain here, and make Canada and Russia habitable. Just, just saying. Side benefit of transportation using internal combustion engines if you believe in global warming. All right. So, we get back to this, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may may be made, I can read, let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So that perfect, you think of it as mature and complete, and the lacking of nothing, right? The, The idea that patience is used instrumentally to bring about our growth in faith. Patience without the word, not sufficient to cause you to grow in faith. Patience with the word works to cause you to grow in faith. So, patience with faith causes faith to grow. And faith depends upon already having the word. So it sort of works it into us. It's the process of the leavening process of causing our soul to have that worked in. Right? Patience, we can go, yeah, I believe bad stuff that happens to me is actually good for me because God works all things for my good. And then the bad things happen, right? And we fall to our knees and go, why? So the process of suffering, God is working it in. He's working it into us. And then when you have a test or trial... And there's success in it, right? If you respond righteously in it, God brings other blessings. And those blessings typically come in the form of a promotion to have more responsibility. And that promotion to have more responsibility guarantees you more suffering. And so you have the opportunity to get more wisdom. So let patience... Have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So, remember that relates to Second Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen. How the word of God is sufficient to equip us for every good work. That the man of God may be complete. Right. You have this this idea of the universals there, in terms of the word, and then we have this idea of. Now, God is going to manage the word in your life and the events in your life in such a way as to make you complete. That's the training part. This is the the part where there's pain mixed with the teaching. 
Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Right? Ask God. If you lack wisdom, ask God for wisdom, and he'll give it to you freely, and he'll give it to you without reproach. It will be given to you. Let him ask in faith. So faith and wisdom, right? If you have faith, if you have faith in the word of God, you've got wisdom. So you go, well, if I lack wisdom, then how am I going to ask in faith? You can't, right? So you need some wisdom. That's saving faith. And if you have that faith, then you can ask in faith for God to give you more wisdom. So this is a sanctification process. And God gives wisdom freely to those who ask in faith. And he does so without reproach. He's not like, no, you have too much. You are being greedy. I'm not going to give you more. He is happy to give you more. You're not going to get a reproach when you say, please, sir, may I have more? You're not going to respond with more. You want more? He's going to be happy to give you more. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So when you pray and you find that you're praying something and then you doubt in your mind, is this a legitimate prayer to ask for? You know what it's a signal for? It's a signal for you to study whether what you're asking for is good or not. Come back after you've studied it and either repent of asking for it or ask more boldly. Okay, you pray for something or you want to pray for something and you're not sure if you should ask, study it. Clear out the doubt. Make it so that you can prove, demonstrate from the word of God so that you can ask without doubting. Let him, who, let him ask in faith with no doubting for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Right? You condemn yourself at one moment and prove yourself at another moment. You're unsure. You have contradictory things you're holding on to. Right? Think about the silliness of this. I think that wisdom is the good. I think getting knowledge of God is the good. And I'm about to pray for wisdom. But then I wonder if this is legitimate to ask for. Okay, we'll go try to figure it out. If wisdom is so good, right, go try to figure it out. If you think it's not very good, that's foolishness. The the idea that wisdom could be bad, the knowledge of what's good is bad, is contrary to any sort of reasonable thought about faith, about the good life, about being able to do what's good. If you don't know what's good, you can't reliably do what's good. The knowledge of what is good is necessary to live well. It's necessary to be able to pray well. So doubting is a signal that you need to go work on that thing. Make it a priority. God has given to us daily private worship, daily household worship, Sabbath, given to us the public worship. These are all means of combating doubts, falsehood, error, ignorance. And then your own life and the pressing of duties that come in, and the difficulties of life, these are all things that make you deal with stuff. They, they reveal to you your ignorance because it, you have a problem. You're not sure how to solve it. You, you have things you want and you don't know if they're lawful to ask for. So those are signals to you to go and study it, to figure it out, to remove the doubting and come to conclusion. And for all of the talk of study, and for all of the talk of wisdom, let me ask you, and I'm asking you, Think about this seriously in the sight of God who reads your mind right now. How much do you actually seriously seek to study something where you're not sure what the answer is? How often do you find that you're able to prove something new? How often do you think we should be able to? How often should we have new things that we can prove. And so, if we are using our doubts and our weaknesses to target things to study, 
Right? We have quick target identification process. Your own mind is identifying the targets of doubt in your mind. When you identify those, take them seriously. Could you imagine if you were a soldier in a war zone and your job was to defeat the enemy and the enemy popped up and you just thought, I'm not going to shoot. I'm not going to fight. In the middle, you're in the middle of fighting. Enemy pops up, they shoot at you. They know where you are. You know where they are. Go back to eating K-rations. The nonsense. Shoot back. Shoot back. This is, this is war. This is spiritual warfare. The doubts are, are there to kill you, to kill your faith. Right? So your doubts, you target them, you identify them, you take them out. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. You will be unstable at the points that you doubt at. And the devil, although he is bound, not all of his minions are, and they are clever. They are clever fellows. And they will find the places where you halter, and if you are doing anything good in one area, they will look for ways of using those places of doubting and haltering and faltering and falling to maximize their ability to pin you down, tie you up, and make you useless to the advance. Very skilled. When you identify them, clear them out quickly. You know, in Major League Baseball, one of the goals of pitchers is to figure out when a batter comes in, figure out as quickly as possible where are they terrible at hitting? What zone are they terrible at hitting? And then to pitch there all the time. Bat it upper left, bat it upper right, center. Where is this guy bad? And then just over and over again. And you can see guys that are really good and their careers just crash once somebody figures that out. And if they're not trained to hit there, they're just going to be moved down to the minor leagues real quick. And then in the minor leagues, pitchers even there, they can, they can throw right. They can, they can throw in the right quadrant. They can throw in the right ninth of the box. They can figure it out. Lose that contract. No renewal. Working at Dick's Sporting Goods. So, if that's the case, do you think the devil is smarter or his minions are smarter than Major League Baseball pitchers? Just ponder that for a moment. He's good at it. So, we need to find those weaknesses and we need to root them out, train out of them, study. You work through a thing, you have a doubt one day, and you go, you know, I, I've answered that, and I, I'm not bothered by it anymore. And then it comes up again, you're like, you know, I don't remember the answer anymore, but I remember I was satisfied when I looked into it a while ago. So, that's okay. I don't need to relook into it. Whoa, 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 whoa. It is way easier to figure it out the second time, to retrace. And you doubt, and you can't remember the answer, and you're not willing to go back and review the subject to remind yourself of the answer? My faith is not your faith. Some explanation I gave you in passing that satisfied your doubt, not sufficient for you to be able to subdue your own doubts. Not, not sufficient. You need to have the answer. You need to analyze that answer. You have a place of doubt. Figure out the answer. Be able to defend that answer, to demonstrate it from the word of God for yourself. Now, this coming to the Father, asking for wisdom, is a demonstration of, of humility. And it tells us how to deal with trials. We go to the Father and we ask for wisdom, but then if we're not sure about what we should be asking for, or how we should be asking, 
what we need to do is to go study. And so those are acts of humility. Those are acts of humility. Studying to figure something out, asking questions to have people help you to figure it out, reviewing information. It's a reminder of your creatureliness. Praying. Those are acts of humility. Asking for God to help you with it. The removal of double-mindedness gives you stability. Now, some of the types of trials that get dealt with in life are losing out on material wealth, losing honor, losing friendships, losing health. So now we get to chapter 1, verse 9. Okay, this relates to the end of the book. Here we have the lowly are exalted and the exalted are brought low. And later on, when we get to B prime, like the sandwich section, it's going to kind of reverse it. It's going to start with the exalted being brought low and then go back to the lowly being exalted. So that's the way that works out in the outline. Verse 9, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. Right? So the, the temporariness of wealth and of the sort of exalted status of wealth, right? having rule, having power, having resources, having freedom. The lowly brother needs to think about all the blessings he has, and the one with the resources needs to be careful to not think of himself as having the power to generate wealth or as having the wealth by his own capabilities apart from God. He needs to remember that the wealth comes from God and he is temporary in his earthly condition. Verse 11, For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. Now, James is calling to mind there for us from the prophets of the Old Testament the idea that man in general is like the grass and like the flower of the field. The flower falls and withers but the word of God endures forever. He's reminding us of that. That's an illusion. And he's reminding us of that. And what he's doing is he is, without exact quotation, referencing in a way that helps us to remember it. And so we think about wisdom is the thing. Money is not the good. Okay? Wisdom literature tends to focus on false views of the good, deconstructing them, and reminding us of the right view of the good, so that we are motivated to pursue it. So be more excited about wisdom than about money. Be more excited about wisdom than about power. Be more excited about wisdom than about pleasure. Wisdom gives you the ability to get more money. Wisdom is power. It gives you power. Wisdom is pleasurable. There's a joy in it. And it allows you to more properly use the means for pleasure with moderation to remove sting from it. But those things are not the good. Those are side effects, like the glorious effect of CO2 leaving that engine, helping us to have a gentler warmth in the tundra, turning it into farmland. Just think of it. Side effect. Just a side benefit. Now, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. Temporariness. Can you lose wisdom? No. Can you lose money? Yes. When you die, do you lose wisdom? No. When you die, do you lose your money? Yes. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. So if your building is a rich man, one of the things that you see in Ecclesiastes, for example... Solomon talks about how he built gardens and he had singers and he built houses and he wasn't satisfied. Right? Whatever you're pursuing with your wealth, whatever you're trying to accomplish, are you building something that lasts? And here's what lasts. The wisdom that you plant in immortal souls. You want to make gardens, build buildings, have singers sing? Are those things beautifying wisdom? Do they ornament wisdom? Do they make wisdom more palatable to the simple? 
Do they make wisdom more beautiful to the wise? Do they cause those who are wicked to see that they need to repent? Does it cause the scoffer to shut his mouth? Then what is your beauty for? What's it for? That's what beauty's for. That's what beauty's for. Preachers are called to shut the mouths of the obstreperous. And the beauty of the submission of wives causes people to not blaspheme the word of God. Wisdom and beauty with good judgment of action. These things are powerful. We ought to seek dominion. We ought to make it beautiful. And we ought to do it for the glory of God in seeking to spread knowledge. So if you're going to build with your wealth, make sure you're building up souls with wisdom. And that the things you do to beautify besides are to support that. Verse 5. Sorry, page 5. Page 5. Verse 12. This is C. Okay? This is about lust and anger versus God's gifts. Evidences of grace to others. Um, in the outline, I have evidences of credibility of profession to others. And C prime, okay, if you go to the end of the book, it's going to have, in chapter 4, you're going to have the lusts and fighting. You see how lusts and anger relate to lusts and fighting? Versus God's gifts or grace. And so evidence of hypocrisy is what that is. So one is evidence of the credibility of a profession. The other one is evidence of hypocrisy. So that's how these relate in terms of the major outline of the book. Okay, so verse 12, page 5, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Okay, so enduring there relates to the word. It's the same word in the, in the Greek as patience earlier. Okay, so blessed is the man who has patience or perseveres or endures or had fortitude in his soul and applied it. Right, that's the idea. Who endures temptation. That's the idea of testing, trials, right? We, we're talking about this. So he's continuing on the same theme. So you see he was talking about it before he started talking about the lowly and the exalted. And now he's moving back into it. Okay? And so that was obviously sort of a, a, a thing on the side. There's this, this sort of parentheses where he's expressing, you know, if you're, if you're poor, there's a certain type of trial there. But wealth is also a type of trial. The thing about wealth is there's the trial to view yourself as powerful, as the source of your wealth. And so all of those things are being laid out. And he has a, re- he has a call back to the wealthy of what they're to think. So he's saying, yeah, you're suffering in poverty. You need to endure. You're in wealth. You need to endure in good works and bring yourself low. So blesses the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who who love him. Okay, so, the crown of life for passing tests. What is this? The covenant of works? Try harder, be better, do well enough, get the crown of life. The point is to talk about how if you pass a particular test, there's an act of approval that occurs there, and the reception of the crown of life What's a crown about? A crown is about authority. It's about power. It's about rule. The point is, when you pass a test, God is going to give you more power. Now, how does that manifest itself? There's blessing for trial and temptation. It's met with stability or fortitude. The crown of life, the power to rule in wisdom... The possession of more life and more power, more honor, and the pleasure of victory and its fruits. Right? When you when you pass a test, when you by faith endure temptation, when you pray during that temptation for God to give you wisdom, when you study to seek to deal with those doubts that arise 
in the midst of that temptation, when you overcome them, your faith has grown. And that faith is belief in the truth. And the truth sets men free. It gives you power to control yourself. It gives you power to control things around you. It gives you power to not bow the knee to Satan or men. It gives you power to endure. It will be honored on that last great day before all men and angels. It will not be forgotten. And you will have the delight of victory. And there are other things that may come with it. Respect of men in this life. Greater rule in this life. Greater possessions in this life. Follow-up opportunities in this life. Trial upon trial, there is a reward of the next trial. There's the promotion. Right? Remember, God doesn't give out vacations as the rewards. He gives out promotions as the rewards. A good life is the life of increasing responsibility. Authority flows to those who take responsibility and rewards flow to those who use authority well. He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So, verse 13. Here is a doctrinal objection to these tests, these temptations, these trials. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Here's how every Arminian preacher... Every Romanist preacher, every Eastern Orthodox preacher will say this needs to be interpreted. Don't say that God sovereignly controls your life and that this bad thing came into your life because God planned it. No, instead, be comforted by the fact that God doesn't control everything and life is a bunch of circumstances outside of God's control. Have fun with that. That is not what James is saying. That is not what James is saying. So, if you have any doubts about how to interpret this text, I would encourage you to slaughter those doubts. And I would ask you to listen carefully to what I'm about to explain so that you can consider how to avoid this doubt ever popping into your mind again. And if you think the way I've explained it is wrong, tell me. Let's talk about it. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We are not talking here about God being the effectual cause of temptation. God is the effectual cause of temptation. He causes all of your temptations. And he planned to cause you to be tempted from before the foundations of the earth. What are we talking about? We are talking about the meritorious cause. We are talking about the cause that's responsible. Responsibility is not the same thing as being the effectual cause. If you shoot someone with a gun and they say, you killed a guy. And your response is, I didn't kill him. The bullets killed him. That's true in terms of a series of events if we talk about causation. But the question was not, did you immediately, without any other means, kill him with your mind? That wasn't the question. The question was, Were you the responsible cause? The bullet wasn't. The cartridge wasn't. The magazine wasn't. The gun wasn't. You were the responsible cause. So, when we're talking about temptation here, there's ambiguities to be overcome. As you look at page 5.8, okay? Temptation or trial by God's hand is not an excuse to sin. God is not tempted by evil and he does not violate the law and become blamable. 
God causes our evil desires to draw us away and entice us for his purposes. Focus on overcoming, not on blaming God. Evil desire grows into evil action. Mature evil increases deadness rather than giving a crown of life. Seek the crown of life, not death. That's the point of this text. So let's consider the misinterpretations. There's ambiguity. Temptation, being tempted, and tempting others. These things are ambiguous terms, and when we see them, we need to understand which sense the term is being used in. Temptation can be an intentional effort by one person to cause evil desire in another person. God does not tempt in the sense that he does not commit the sin of tempting. Why? Is that because God doesn't intend for you to be tempted? No. It's because he's above the law. If God causes you to be tempted, he's not committing the sin of tempting, but he is causing you to be tempted, and he meant for that to happen. God does intentionally predestine and cause evil desire in creatures. He predestined that Judas would murder Jesus. That was the worst sin in the history of the world. And he predestined that sin. We that explicitly. Temptation can be an external object, animate or inanimate. God is not guilty of the sin of setting stumbling blocks or rocks of offense. Why? Is it because he doesn't plan for those things to be stumbling blocks or rocks of offense? No, he planned for Jesus to be a stumbling block. He planned for Jesus to be a rock of offense, and he loved it. He delighted in that. He smashed people on that rock. Why is it that God is not guilty of the sin of tempting? Because he's above the law. You noticing a pattern? God's above the law. If you try to judge God by the law, you're doing it wrong. God's above the law. The law does not apply to God. God wrote the law. He made the law. He is above the law. He's the definition of good. What he does is good. By definition. And if you have a standard above God, there's no rational defense for that. That thing becomes the good. Whatever the good is, is the good. And you judge everything else by it. You don't judge it by something above it. It's a category error. Temptation can be an external object, animate or inanimate. God is not guilty of the sin of setting stumbling blocks or rocks of offense because he's above the law. God does set stumbling stones, rocks of offense, and traps to fall into. He pulls together and controls with absoluteness all of the external circumstances. God does tempt in the sense that God causes all of our external temptations. God does not tempt in the sense that God does not commit the sin of tempting. Why? He's above the law. Temptation can be internal desire for evil. God himself has no evil desires. Christ's human nature had no evil desires. When you talk about Christ being tempted... He was tempted in the sense that he had external temptations uh, given to him. He was tempted in the sense that human beings committed the sin of trying to tempt him. He was never tempted in the sense that he never had an evil desire. God himself has no evil desires, and Christ's human nature had no evil desires. Jesus was tempted externally. Jesus was not tempted internally. God does tempt in the sense that he causes all of our internal temptations. God does not tempt in the sense that he does not commit the sin of tempting. Why? I'm glad you asked. Because he's above the law. The desire to say that God tempted me is to place blame on God rather than self. We are responsible for sin. We have a judge who can call us to give a response. We have a law under which we are judged and held responsible. We are aware of a standard that we break. And we expect to have to give a response. And we desire to escape that with the bogus response that God made me do it. And so that removes responsibility. It's true. He did cause you to do it. But that doesn't remove your responsibility. The alternative is that we can respond by repenting and seeking to justify God rather than, and, and condemn ourselves in order to receive justification by grace alone. 
So God is not responsible for sin. There was no judge to call him to give a response. There was no law above him to hold him responsible with. And he has no delusions that there is a standard above him or that he will have to give an account to anybody. No one can say to him, what have you done? Nobody can call him to give an account. God of the Bible is terrifying. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proper understanding of God helps you to have the fear of the Lord. There's no court of appeal. No one to come to and ask for help except for him. What do we need to be saved from? Principally, the wrath of God. That's what we need to be saved from. And he's the one that saved us. So, I've given to you types of causes as they relate to sin and evil. Bottom of page 6. Types. First one, the formal cause of sin and suffering is the law of God. The law of God makes it so that there is a, a legal structure under which we can be held accountable. It's the law that we're held responsible for keeping. Okay, God's decree is the effectual cause of sin and suffering. God chooses this will happen, and therefore it necessarily happens. Human or angelic choice is the instrumental cause of sin and suffering. In other words, under the formal cause, under the law, we make the choice to sin. That choice is predestined by God, but that choice is used instrumentally to bring about guilt. The sinning creatures are the meritorious cause of sin. We're chargeable, we're responsible, we're countable. Only creatures are the authors of sin. The term the author of sin, God is not the author of sin. That means God's not the chargeable cause. He's not the responsible cause. He's not the accountable cause. It does not mean he's not the effectual cause. God's glory is the ultimate cause of sin. Why does God cause sin? Why does he plan sin? Because he wants to glorify himself. Without evil, there is no wickedness to punish. Justice cannot be displayed fully. All you have is very happy angels dancing around on heads of pins, laughing at theologians who were not created because there's no evil. Those angels would be righteous, and there would be no evil angels. So why are there fallen angels? So that God can show the punishment of the wicked. Okay, why man? So that man as a race can be fallen, so that there can be a separation of the body and the soul, so that the body can die and the soul not die, so there can be a righteous mediator who can die without sinning, without soul death. He is able to die by the separation of the body from the soul. And in that, he is able to die as a representative so that there can be both guilty people who are punished and guilty people who receive mercy. That is why. Why does that matter? Because God has the attribute of mercy and he wanted to display it elaborately. Historical events and circumstances are not a cause of sin. Historical events and circumstances are occasions for sin. They are tests. They are temptations. They are trials. These occasions are means that are not causal in the technical sense. To be causal in the technical sense is, right, an effect necessarily follows a cause. And a cause necessarily results in the effect. These events don't necessarily result in sin. All right, page seven. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. By the way, I have that highlighted because that's a kind of a key term. And some of the outlines of the book of James use the my beloved brethren points as major section headings. Okay, so I don't think that's the proper outline of the book, but it is a thematic term that's used over and over again. So it's interesting to take note of them. So over and over again, my beloved brethren or my brethren or my brothers. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God does not change. There's no variation or shadow of turning. That's a great proof text for the doctrine of the immutability of God. He's eternal. He's unchanging. There is no variation in God. There is no shadow of turning in God. There's no no change, and there's not even a hint of change. 
Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So, he's reminding of the good gifts that have been given. He's reminding us, don't be deceived. Don't have unbelief or foolishness. Remember, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. What's that in relationship to? Was he talking about anything that was perfect previously, like endurance and the perfect work that endurance brings? The point there is to remind us that God gives endurance and God gives the trials. And he gives the trials as a means or occasion for endurance so that you can grow in faith, so that you have more of the knowledge of God. Because faith is the knowledge. So every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So where does faith come from? This is a Calvinistic proof text. Arminians, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, they love the book of James. James is a Calvinist, friends. Let's, let's notice this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. That includes faith or patience or wisdom. And also, hey, why would we pray for wisdom if God can't give it? Oh, it says he does give it. So who gives the faith? Who gives the wisdom? God. And it comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. There's no variation or shadow of turning. God's attitudes don't change. His compassions do not change. The people he loves, he loves forever. The people he hates, he hates forever. His attitudes do not change. His attitudes do not change. Of his own will, he brought us forth. That's talking about the new birth. Guess who causes the new birth? Guess who causes us to be brought forth in life so that we have regeneration? It's sovereignly done, monergistically, by God. He does it. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That's the ordinary means, the preaching of the word. This Holy Spirit regenerates. How does he normally do it? Through the preaching of the word, by the truth. That we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He had a goal of making us, well, making, here we have the Jewish believers, the first fruits. The Jewish believers were the first fruits. That they might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So that right there, that accomplishment, and that right there is only an intermediary step to causing the nations to become believing, to causing the Jews as a group to come back, to causing the earth to be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. This is a decisive point, but it's not the ultimate objective. The ultimate objective is far broader than the first fruits. The first fruits are the first fruits. There's lots of fruits after the first. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. To hear what? The word of truth. Slow to speak. Slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We should be swift to hear the word of truth. And we should be very careful about what we speak. Because Jesus told us that we will be held accountable for every idle word. You know what I would suggest? Get rid of idle words. How many idle words of you like that one? Solid. Nailed it. Worth it. Glad that came out of my mouth. Isn't the very nature of idle words that they're not particularly thoughtful? Should any word be unthoughtful that comes out of our mouths? So, the way you greet people, do you greet people in a way that honors the Lord? The way that you say goodbye, is that in a way that honors the Lord? The terms that you use to respond to surprise are those words that honor the Lord those are common places for idle words how do you greet how do you leave what do you say when you're surprised let every man be swift to hear slow to speak slow to wrath For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. There is a righteous anger, and that righteous anger is not produced by the flesh. 
Righteous anger is not produced by what's in you. Righteous anger is a response of wisdom, and that wisdom comes from above. We have to be very careful about our wrath, even more careful than we are just about our words, because the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Is that an understatement or what? What does the wrath of man produce? The wrath of man produces all sorts of wickedness, all sorts of destruction. But there is a great danger for the wrath of man. And words are a kindling fire. It makes wrath in others and stokes our own wrath. And so we have to be careful about words. Do you see that this is the foreshadowing to him talking about the tongue later on? Do you see this is also a foreshadowing to him talking about how not many of you should be teachers? Are you starting to see the chiastic structure of the book just from your prior knowledge of it? Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights? Mr. Cordova? Uh, thank you for teaching all the reasons. I just wanted to comment on that last bit. Planning on raising that, that uh, I was seeing that building up towards chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Okay. Mr. Marsh? For the announcement. Thank you very much. I'll announce that immediately following, so we'll have a formal announcement about it while everybody's still assembled. Thank you very much for that. All right, we're once going twice. Sold. All right, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the teaching of your word. We ask that you would help us to hear what you have revealed. You would help us to communicate well and wisely. I ask that you would cause us to be able to control anger and to be able to manifest righteous anger with self-control and to be able to suppress, subdue, and to conquer and crush underfoot the wrath of man. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, please stand, open your Psalters to 72, part 2. Okay, so this text ends with the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, or ended. It's the ending of, if I'm recalling correctly, the third book. And so we will not be singing that part, just as we don't sing the titles. Those are sort of outside of the poem, but it's a part of the structural writing of the, the book of Psalms. So, verse 12. When the needy cry, he'll save them. And the poor who have no help, he will spare the poor and needy. Also, He will save their soul. He'll redeem their life from violence and also from oppression because their blood is considered to be precious in his sight. He will live and he will receive gold of Sheba as a gift. Constantly the people offer up their prayers on his behalf. We offer up prayers on the behalf of Messiah in this way in particular. How often do we pray that his kingdom would be advanced? They will also speak their praises of him each and every day. There will be abundance of grain even on the mountaintop. That's how far dominion gets. Try getting irrigation on top of a mountain. Yes, the fruitfulness will show forth as though it were Lebanon. Those who dwell within the city will flourish like grass of earth. Those of you who don't like cities, that text is a usefulness to cities and a flourishing that exists with dominion. His name will surely be preserved forever and evermore. 
Yes, as long as the Son endures, so His name will continue. In Him, men will receive blessing, and nations will call Him blessed. The Lord God, the God of Israel, be blessed, who does wondrous things. And so let His glorious name be blessed forevermore. Let His glory fill all the earth. Amen, and so let it be. You have a double amen there. Do you think that the earth is going to be filled with His glory? Double amen. Amen.